This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It's a great delight to be sitting down with James Eglinton. Welcome to London, James. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> now, James has just come from a fairly hectic week, which began with uh, speaking at London Seminary, where there was a power cut. <laughs> there was, yeah. So I was doing the Lloyd-Jones lecture on preaching, and the power went off about half an hour before the lecture was due to begin. Thankfully, someone had a couple of battery-powered bedside lamps, so I had those on the lectern. But actually, I was speaking about Herman Bavinck, this 19th-century preacher, and it was actually it made the whole thing quite authentic to be preaching in the dark without electricity. Uh, you know, for him, it would have been a paraffin lamp, I guess. But it, it, it worked very well. Uh, what about J. H. Bavinck during the war? How would he have dealt with it? Oh, so he, so yeah, he he uh, during the war, he so he worked through Nazi occupation, lived in Amsterdam and um, wrote his books in those years in secret in the basement of his house in Amsterdam with very thick curtains to black out the light. And he set up a bicycle generator in his basement that he would get his children to pedal, and that would power a light bulb. And he would be next to the light bulb with his typewriter, and that's how he wrote his, his theology during World War II. There you go. Yeah. Some apostles, some prophets, some peddling. Yeah. <laughs> Peddling the truth. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Very Family good. enterprise. Excellent. Well, it's superb to meet you, James. And what a delight to have so many people coming out to hear about a, a, the translation of a book by Johann Hermann Bavinck, the yep. nephew of Hermann, Hermann Bavinck. Yeah. But uh, it'd be good to hear just a little bit about you yourself. I mean, you have translated this book from the Dutch. Yeah. When we previously spoke in Edinburgh, we talked about how uh, well, you, your grandparents were converted in the revival at Lewis, which is absolutely fascinating. My grandmother was. Your grandmother. And my grandfather, many years after that. Ah, fascinating. Uh, he was in his late 50s for many years of my grandmother's prayers for him. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, bless God. Yeah. That wonderful. And then, so you had the Gaelic, you had the English, and the Dutch. Actually, you lived in Holland to learn, yeah. you learned Dutch before you moved? How did it work? What was the yeah, sequence? So I did my PhD in Edinburgh on Herman Bavinck. To do that, you have to be able to read Herman Bavinck. <laughs> um, otherwise, you won't have very much to say. And um, a lot of his books are untranslated. And even translation is still an act of interpretation. So you have to read it in the original. So I learned to read Dutch, but it was 19th century Dutch. Um, so I couldn't speak it really. But then after my PhD, I, I got a job at a Dutch university and had to learn to speak Dutch as people speak it today. And um, had to go from sounding very, well, having a very archaic vocabulary, shall we say, <laughs> and a very strange accent to trying to sound like a normal Dutch person today. Um, so I, I, I lived there for three years and um, kept our Nederlands geleerd. And uh, I, I love languages anyway. So it was, it was great to get to live there and um, pick up a new one to that kind of level and then use that to translate books afterwards. Mm. Oh, well, then you. That's a real commitment to actually go and learn a language so you can read one particular person. Mm. And uh, having lived in Scotland and in Holland, what are some observations culturally? Oh, yeah. We, I mean, we could spend all evening talking about this. Um, something I was, I was reflecting on this week through what I've been covering with students at the seminary here is I've been talking to them a lot about cultural fluency and how you engage with people with, with the Christian faith. And cultural fluency is not the same as linguistic fluency. So you can learn someone's language, know all the rules of grammar, speak to them in that language and still make no sense at all, not be understood because there's a mentality that goes with the language. So a Scottish person can learn, and this is my true story as well, you can learn Dutch, all the rules are correct in your grammar, you can speak with a Dutch accent in English and in Dutch. Uh, you know, so you can sound like them in terms of the accent even in Dutch. 
but um, I was, it took a lot longer for me to learn the culture. And hmm. by that, I mean Scottish people, especially where I come from, you have to be very polite, very indirect, and, and, but that's clear and understandable to other people. Mm -hmm. With Dutch people, you shoot from the hip, you say exactly what you think, <laughs> and you give reasons for why you like or don't like things. Or, so if, someone, if you offered me a cup of coffee and I didn't want it, I would have to say, you know, no, I don't like coffee. To a Scottish person, that would be really, really rude. But to a Dutch person, if you didn't say why you didn't want the coffee, they would wonder, well, what, what's he hiding? Or why is he not giving me the reason for not wanting it? So, yeah, um, so I had to learn not just the language, um, but how to communicate. And, uh, example of this, um, uh, after living there for, I don't know, maybe eight or nine months, left work one day, my bike had a flat tire. So I'm pushing my bike along the road and a friend, a Dutch friend cycles past and he stops and asks in Dutch, oh, your, your bike has a flat tire. Would you like to borrow my spare bike while yours gets repaired? And um, answered him in, in very fluent Dutch, um, that would be wonderful as long as it's not inconvenient. A very polite Scottish way of saying yes. And he's like, sorry, what? And then, okay, how do I rephrase this in Dutch again? Um, as long as it doesn't put you out, then that would be wonderful. So do you want the bike or not? Okay, <laughs> rephrase that another way. And then eventually he just said, I, what on earth are you talking about? Do you want the bike or not? D just say yes or no. He says, yeah. And he's like, so why didn't you just say so? Um, so I've been talking a lot about cultural fluency, but if you try to pursue that, then it makes you aware of um, just how differently people carry themselves and how they think at quite a deep level. Mm. Um, and I think for me to live there and, and communicate and be communicable. Um, it's almost like, and J.H. Bavink is a really big help with this, you have to learn how, you're, how the ways that people's personalities are formed, they're actually very deeply formed in a culture. <laughs> and if you really want to integrate and go as native as you can, you have to let who you are actually, the configuration of your own personality, be reconfigured by that culture. Um, and that's a scary thing to do. Mm -hmm. You have to learn to become, what in my culture would be very rude actually, mm -hmm. but in Dutch culture, being like I was, my default, Invernesian personality would be rude to Dutch people. Mm -hmm. I had to learn to stop saying thank you for everything. Mm -hmm. Th people hold the door open, thanks, thank you Val, thank you Val. Someone said to me at work, you sound very fake. Stop thanking us for all these small things. And um, so you have to learn to let your personality be reconfigured a bit. But then that's a really important thing to subject yourself to if what your personality is grounded in is, is actually something that's really deep and eternal, mm -hmm. that you can still be yourself even if another culture sort of reconfigures it a bit. Yeah, and then this is where, where Bamming, I, I find George Bamming fascinating because he has that whole, that whole observation which you'll see in uh, Doi Veerd and, uh, and Henry Van Til, the whole idea that um, culture is religion made explicit yeah. and living in london as we do now mm. surrounded by so many cultures the question is how are we going to navigate this and are mm. we supposed to show deference and respect to every culture mm. and if someone comes into your church whose culture so for example a friend of mine is a missionary in nepal mm. and he was being taught this is how he was being taught nepalese the language and uh, one of the phrases they were taught was that's just how it is and he was being taught, so the phrase he was taught was, so my wife burnt my dinner, so I beat her. That's just how it is. And that's yeah. cultural. That's cultural. Yeah. So the guy comes into the church. Oh, bless God for salvation. I beat my wife because she, hang on, that culture isn't a good culture. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to, how do we navigate these things? And that's one of the things we find so helpful in these guys because they go to the heart. They go mm -hmm. to the, the depths. And one of the things which is fascinating with these guys is first Herman, uh, Bavink, he brings 
reformed theology and the fascinating God-centered, Christ-purposed, um, Holy Spirit applying uh, gospel to the hearts mm. of people. Yeah. And some of the people who have been so helpful on that mm. live in such a different world. I mean, yeah. loving Edwards as we do, it was a very strange place. Mm. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and the Genevans and so on. But uh, contemporary fellows speaking this, this colorful theology, but then Bavink applying it missionally is fascinating. Yeah. Can you develop that thought a little? Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe a way to develop that would be to talk about the backdrop to the book and why J.H. Bavink wrote this book um, and why worldview is really important to answer this specific thing. So his uncle Herman Bavink released the book in 1904 called Christian Worldview. And one of the ideas in that book is that, that there's no such thing as a neutral human being who's mm. not formed in a particular culture. There's no such thing as just a neutral person who floats around with no particular connections and who's able to be totally objective and, and all of their judgments and perceptions. Uh, we're all rooted in something. We all have all kinds of presuppositions, biases, a priori starting points. And because of that, we're all shaped by worldviews. And worldview then is a really important concept. So there's nobody who can say, well, you might say you have a worldview, but I don't. Right. How I see things is just how they are. It's yes. just common sense. Yes. So he, so Herman Bavink wrote a book that demolished the idea that there's just common sense, and I can, and I'm actually unbiased, and you can trust my judgments um, because they're, I just see things the way they are. So Herman Bavink really demolished that and set up a, a way of thinking about worldview, um, where worldview is something that's really influential. Um, so we're all we're all shaped by different worldviews, and nobody doesn't have one. Um, but the way that Herman Bavink described it was also that worldview is is a really momentous thing to strive towards in your life. And the, so the image that you could use to understand Herman Bavink and worldview is that a worldview is really like a map that you use to navigate the world wisely, but you don't just get the map. Um, you know, you're not born with it. You, uh, you actually have to make the map for yourself by asking some big questions. You know, what am I? Um, how can I know things? If so, what can I know? On the basis of what I know, what should I do? So really big philosophical questions about life, very mm. existential questions. And his argument in, that, in his book was that Christianity gives you the resources both to pose and to answer the questions. And then a map of living wisely in this world starts to unfold, but you actually have to do the cartography yourself with these resources. And then the way that he shows what he means about worldview starts to appear as... Um, something that, that you really do have to strive towards. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that, these big, glorious worldviews unfold, but they're the end result of a lot of striving and seeking mm -hmm. after wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it's all very compelling. And then you see these big worldviews that have emerged and we start to see that we're all shaped by one of them or another. But there's a big unanswered question in Herman's book, which is, what about people who just don't put in any of that effort, who live very unexamined lives, and who aren't interested in all of the effort that it takes to build these huge maps. And um, the, so that this book is the nephew, J.H. Bavink's follow-up to his uncle's book with answering that specific question. So worldviews are really important. Everybody is influenced by them in one way or another. But what about, or what's, what's our starting point in the path towards a wise worldview? And what about if you never take a single step towards that? If you're just happy to stay where you are uncritically, and, um, and he introduces a concept that he calls world vision to describe the starting point. Um, now, I guess where this starts to come around to your question, um, particularly with how uh, you know, we're so deeply formed by something, um, 
he uses this distinction between a world view and a world vision to explain that there are some humans in history who who have put in that remarkable effort, who have developed extremely compelling, sophisticated, very holistic philosophies of life. And he'll name people like Confucius or Lao Tzu or Immanuel Kant or Spinoza um, and say that these are humans whose effort is so remarkable that it actually creates a culture around them. And the the worldview that they unfurl trickles down to an extent and then it becomes something that, that you receive fragments of <laughs> and, you're, and it kind of pours down a bit into your into the culture that forms you. But beneath that, it actually trickles down into, and this is where the personality part comes into his book, into your the basic way that your personality is configured. Okay? And this is a very roundabout way to answer your question. So That's I'm getting there. Okay? So um, in, in this book, he sets out um, a, a basic working definition of the human inner life. So he'll call it the soul interchangeably, the mind, the, your eye, you know, your sense of, that you are you and not someone else in your inner life. So the human soul, the human inner life has four faculties. It can do four things. It does four things. Um, it receives impressions of things beyond itself so that your inner life perceives things. You know, you're aware that you're aware that you're self-conscious and you're also aware that there are other things out there. So you receive, you know, billions of impressions of things outside yourself all the time. You're always receptive to everything that's not you, the world beyond yourself. So you receive impressions. Um, you also evaluate them. You make value judgments about these things. You don't treat them all as completely flattened out. Nothing is more important than anything else. Because in fact, you know, at any, any given time, you, your inner life is, is perceiving you know, innumerable impressions of things around you. And, and your, your soul, your inner life, orders them into a, a, a world that, um, where there, there's actually tons of stuff that you block out all the time as well. And that's a value judgment that goes on in your inner life without you ever thinking about it. Um, so your soul receives impressions of things beyond itself, or your inner life does. It evaluates them instantaneously. It sifts them and sorts them. It also conserves <laughs> what it sees. You remember things. And that's also a process of evaluation of making value judgments that some things need to be remembered and some things need to be forgotten and then on that basis your soul also desires to do things in that world beyond yourself mm -hmm. and you want to change the world actually or you have this desire that drives you forward through that world mm -hmm. so he argues that these four things are four properly basic features of the human inner life mm -hmm. okay? they're just there but the thing is this worldview trickle-down effect actually trickles down not just into the culture that you live in, but even to the way that, you're, that these faculties are configured in relation to each other. Mm -hmm. So this means that there are some worldviews. You know, so if you're thinking like the, you know, the, the great figure who climbs to the top of this mountain searching for truth and then develops a very big complex worldview, if the way that that person develops that big worldview is, is for example, some kind of idea that um, the produces a lot of passivity as a kind of high virtue about the world. So let's say um, the idea is um, that your body is really a, a cage for your soul and the material world is something that you can't trust. It's all an illusion. And this is a very common Eastern kind of assumption about the world. Let's say that's what you have in the worldview. Um, that trickles down, he argues, not just into the kind of world vision, the narrative that you live by. It even has an effect in trickling down into how the faculties of your inner life are ordered. Hmm. Right? And that means that in some cultures, he says, 
the kind of worldview that shapes the culture means that people, that the, the kind of passive receptivity that you have becomes really overgrown in your inner life and you become very passive and not active. Um, and there's that imbalance. Mm -hmm. But there are other cultures where the worldview that's trickling down um, is very much about being active. Mm -hmm. And then you get cultures where people don't really know how to be very passive. And then they, you, know, you can um, have very activist kind of cultures. Mm -hmm. And the, the point that he makes with all of this, which is a very long-winded way to get back to your original question, <laughs> is that you know, in, our, in our Western culture, for example, at the moment, there's the idea that if you, could, if you can just turn into your inner self, that's authentic, that's untainted by culture, that's where you get the true self. Um, Self-created, you just know yourself. Mm -hmm. um, as though that's something that isn't also a product of a culture. Um, this is seen as somehow detached from it and just this pure thing mm -hmm. that you could turn inwards and that's where you find what you need to live out. Mm -hmm. um, but this book is a really powerful argument that no, even down to the way that your personality is configured mm -hmm. and that deep level of inner self, you're a product of a worldview that has trickled down to create a culture that's a kind of watered-down version of the pure worldview mm -hmm. that even configures like quite um, typical personality configurations mm -hmm. within that culture. Mm -hmm. But even in your inner life, you can't escape being formed by a culture. Hmm. And that's quite a profound thought. If that's true, then the, the kind of narrative that we live by, you know, turn inwards to find your inner self, and there that's, uh, that's the reliable guide to go by. Um, not really, actually. That, that you're, even to that deep, deep, deep level, yeah. you're shaped by a culture. He's, in that sense, it, it, does, it reminds you of a lot of Keller's work mm. where he's, he'll say it's not just... Uh, you, you look at what you actually believe, what it is that you actually are holding. You find it's inconsistent with itself. And he is fascinating the way he goes and looks at... Uh, he starts with uh, Descartes and, and Kant and says, these guys actually aren't actually consistent with themselves. You have to be seen in the context of... Well, Spinoza notices, notices you can only understand yourself if you're in the context of God. Yep. Now, on, the, on reference to that, though, uh, John Flavel talks about... Um, uh, he quotes Luther saying, uh, uh, he says, nolo uh, deum absolutum. Without, I, I want nothing to do with a God who is absolute without a mediator. Mm -hmm. And the thrilling thing about, uh, this, uh, about the, the, the Bavinks is that they are not just philosophically mm -hmm. intrigued with their out there is a sort of a force. Mm -hmm. He brings it back to the gospel. Now, can you t draw that out for us a little? How he, how he, because he sort of lay, he pulls you apart first mm -hmm. and he says, all right, here are the pieces. Let's mm -hmm. make a meal out of them. Let's make a cake out of this. Yeah. <laughs> How does yeah. he bring the gospel in specifically? Yeah, so um, he brings the gospel into this by thinking about human beings in a very theological way in the first place. So he's aware that he's doing Christianing reasoning about what the human being is, and what it means to be human. And that means that when he is thinking about um, just how diverse human life seems to be, across all these different global populations, there are nonetheless universal impulses and strivings that you find mm -hmm. um, that might be diversely expressed, differently expressed. You know, humans are not culturally homogenous. But what he is trying to see always is that beneath culture, there is the image of God. Yes. Okay? There's a human being who you have to interpret theologically that this human being is a creature, is made for a particular goal, which is to, to know God, to see mm. God. But there's also something in the narrative of those humans that has affected that, which is sin. And then J.H. Bavinck is very 
committed to thinking about this in relation to what Paul says in Romans 1 about how humans are surrounded by the general general revelation of God, which is the world around us, but also general revelation is received internally. Hmm. God actually shares a knowledge of himself with us constantly in our in our souls, and that's the thing that humans suppress in unrighteousness. So there's a, there's a particular act of suppression that's happening in every human heart, happening constantly, and it happens so constantly that we're not even aware that we're doing it. But what we're trying to push down is the thing that still gives shape to what sits on top. Amazing. Okay? So an, an illustration that I've, I use quite often um, in trying to explain this to people is, um, if you let's say you walk into a, f- a field in the countryside and you see a hillock, and um, you know there's this grassy shape, and if you have an utterly untrained eye, well, you can observe that there's a hill there. But if you're an archaeologist, you see the hill differently, and actually you are looking to excavate what's underneath the, or what, what gives rise to the shape on top? You know, what, what could possibly be there under the grass? And if you have trained eye, maybe you'll see, well, this is just a natural geological feature. It's just a hill um, that's supposed to be there. But if you're an archaeologist, you might identify there's a ridge here. There's a deeper part there. Um, here I can see that beneath this, there is a wall. There is some ancient structure underneath this. And actually, you see the shape of what lies underneath from the, the impression that it creates on the surface. So what J.H. Bavink is trying to do when he looks across all of humanity, diverse human cultures, is to see that there is the imprint of the suppressed knowledge of God yeah. going on. And he's trying to excavate culture to get to this universal human soul underneath it, mm. expecting that the suppression will take place differently mm-hmm. and the shape will be different. Yeah. But he's but that's what we're all trying to do. And then he's got a really interesting way of getting to um, how wherever you go in in human cultures, you'll find uh, what he calls magnetic points. So however hard humans try to get away from God, we're still drawn to what we're we're suppressing almost magnetically in lots of different ways and looking for something to belong to and looking for a sense of deliverance. And he he has all these points. There's a great book by Dan Strange developing this. Um, But however hard we try to suppress this, we, we never truly can. And he also has a great idea that... If you suppress what this is, in, in Reformed theology, we call this the sense of the divine, mm. sensus divinitatis. When you suppress that, you can you, you can suppress it. Humans do this all the time. But there's something that's left over, and he calls this the sensus numinous, sense of the numinal, which is this residual product of the suppression of the sense of the divine. Wow. So the sense of the numinal, is, that's culture, actually. Culture yeah. has this everywhere. So You could call that London. <laughs> You could call it Edinburgh, you could call it humanity. I mean, the right. sense of the noumenal is everywhere. Yeah. So that gives you something to address. It gives you something to excavate. So what's beneath the sense of the noumenal? sense of the divine. Wow. And there you're interpreting culture, and actually you're, exca- you're taking the grass off the top of the hillock and saying, oh, this is the shape of the building that the grass is pushing down. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, the, and, and it, what comes out, and he saw it again and again in um, quotes, is that how, here's, here's a quote, despite this, our reason cannot rest until it is pushed through the causes into the very first cause. I mean, mm. this is rich stuff. And you can see he's, he's bleeding Augustine. Mm. It's just a, he's, he's, he's the worship uh, impulse, which is, a, which, is, which is at the heart of each person. I propose, just, can I ask you, a very, you're so brilliant. When I, when I 
give you a, a title. You can just talk. So this is very cool. But, uh, but um, I should be an examiner. <laughs> Discuss. Um, I, I noticed that one of the things, working in, in history, as we do with Christian Heritage London, giving people tours through what God has done, mm-hmm. telling the stories of the consequences of a Wilberforce, a Shaftesbury, a Spurgeon, an Elizabeth Fry, and so on. The consequences are we, we see in history... The consequences of that kind of the yeast in the flour. Mm-hmm. And we make the point historically. Mm-hmm. In, J- in Herman Babink, you, almost, you seem to see it more theologically. And I think that you're touching m- many on those things. But with J.H. Babink, you see it philosophically and historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, th- it, it, have, you, have you thought in those terms? It, would, they, would Herman, was he thrilled with his nephew? Um, so his nephew really emerged after Herman died. So, okay. um, so he taught him. He was a student. But then, you know, Herman died in 1921. And then um, J.H.'s, you know, his, his whole contribution develops after that. I think he would have been. Um, there are two particular th- causes that Herman championed throughout his, his life were, in the first place, that theology needs to reckon much more with psychology. <laughs> we have to think much more about what's going on in the human heart, in the human inner life, when theology is done or when the gospel is presented. So, and this, he said, was a very Augustinian concern as well. And there's also a big growth in their time in secular accounts of um, psychology that were then becoming very culturally influential. So he spent a long time calling for people in his own church tradition to reckon much more with psychology. Mm-hmm. J.H. Baving does that. So the early part of his career is largely spent developing books like this and mm-hmm. um, and then the other cause that Herman championed throughout his lifetime was that their their church tradition had to do much more uh, intentional work in missiology. And then actually his nephew is the person who comes yeah. forward who takes up both of those yeah. causes. So yeah. I think he would have been pretty yeah. pretty happy. Mm. And he has that delightful impulse to help mm. people. Yeah. I love that thing in the... In, um Introduction to the Science of Missions. He says, when I'm talking to a Muslim, I'm not talking to Islam. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. to this Muslim. Yeah. I think that's, that's a gospel priority, mm. isn't it? Yeah. I love that with your grandma 50 years later. Mm. Granddad, bless yeah. God for that. Isn't yeah. that precious? Yeah. Okay, I, I, I could talk for all evening. But uh, I, I told people if you want to uh, uh, bring any questions. Has anyone got any questions? Dr. Thomas. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, could you restate the question as much as you can in the in the answer for yeah. the mic? Sure. So, I think that to re- try and restate the question, um, has something gone wrong in the development of worldview based Christian thinking? If worldview becomes everything, and then experientially you lose a, a Jesus view, um, is that something that has gone awry in worldview based thinking, or is it actually the the conclusion of it? Is that the question? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, I think all ideas can can go badly wrong. Um, it's the nature of ideas, and that's why we have to be careful with them. Um, when I discovered this book, um, I was really keen to translate it and make sure other people had access to it, um, actually precisely for this reason. So um, the, 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 the background to this is that in the Netherlands, there was a guy called Abraham Kuyper, he was a Calvinist. He became prime minister. He's prime minister from 1901 to 1905. And he was the first person to go really big on talking about worldview to Dutch people. So he was a contemporary of Herman Bavink. And um, Kuiper had this, uh, this trait that, that was quite annoying to people around him. Um, and if you know Kuiper, you're wondering which one of those could it have been. But this particular trait was that he, he really did tend to reduce people to their worldviews. 
So, oh, so you're Roman Catholic? Okay, well, I know you. You, like, you, you, you. It's kind of like the point that you just made. I'm talking to Roman Catholicism, not to this Catholic, or I'm talking to Islam and not to this Muslim. And and he tended to re- just re- reduce people to their worldviews like that. Um, and then that can also have an effect if you are a Christian, that you that you kind of substitute self for the Christian worldview and abstraction. And that is not a healthy tendency. And worldview has a lot of... Um, opportunity to go awry there. Herman Bavinck himself tried to correct that. And he has this book, Christian Worldview, which has also been published by Crossway. We translated that a few years ago. Um, but this book is still the next answer along because this book was written for young Dutch people who were wrestling with precisely your question. So the book began actually as lectures to engineering students at the Technical University in Delft. And um, they asked them to come and give us a series of lectures. So we gave these lectures on worldview. And for these young people, they they all um, felt quite pushed away by the way that worldview discourse was going in their circles um, for this kind of reason. And a comparison might be in America at the moment, you, you, you might find people saying, you're a Christian if you have these, if you believe mm-hmm. these things, you vote this yep. way. And if you, yep. and it was, so it didn't actually engage a heart yeah, so, so much as these are behaviors. The heart seems to be yep. sort of secondary. Easily identifiable externals. Um, and then I'm all right as long as I tick these boxes. And then you you do lose a lot in terms of what, what it means to, to be a Christian. Absolutely. So he's responding to that for these young people, trying to pick up on what Herman had done, but supplementing it to say, um, worldview really matters, primarily because it shapes the culture you live in. And you can't actually understand the struggles with A, being human, and then B, receiving the gospel and following Christ and that culture, if we never ever talk about worldview, we can't actually explain the reality of how we're formed within cultures without worldview. But if we only have a worldview concept and we don't actually have something that we proactively put together to explain something else alongside that, Mm. then we're also missing a big piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And that's what he adds in this book with the world vision um, idea, which is how do I understand um, what has formed me as an individual, the, the, the kind of um, set of assumptions about truth and life from the world that I live on the basis of, not an abstract worldview out there for my whole culture, but me right. as an individual. Mm-hmm. And how do I attain, how do I try and find the self-knowledge that I um, need to become aware of in order to seek the knowledge of, it's a bit like Augustine. Okay? When Augustine is converted, he actually has this, a light bulb goes off when he realizes, I know neither myself nor God. Hmm. And by being converted, I now know both. Hmm. And it's not that I knew myself, but didn't know God. So there's a moment of realization that, that the gospel um, brings to Augustine in both self-knowledge and knowledge of God. And worldview on its own can give you cultural knowledge, but that's not the same as saying, I don't actually know myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need, I know that I need to become someone different, which is the call of the gospel. It calls you to repent, to be reformed in your life, yeah. to be put back together by the gospel. Mm-hmm. So that's why I actually, when I discovered, I came across this book and there's a long backstory to why it was forgotten um, in the first place, but that, which is a, a separate story. But when I came across this book and read it, um, it seemed like the missing piece of, and it was put there so intentionally by the author. Mm. So I really wanted to get it out there to try and help precisely that issue. It, it also, it, it touches on an implication, which is once we, in a church, in church history, you always see it. 
it takes, there's an individual. It's interesting, you know, you see, they'll raise up 12 disciples and, and off they go and everyone can see there's a guy who's, he's, and Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Mm. It seems that a person seems to be significant. And for somebody to be able to interpret and engage with the complexity of these things, to point out that Kant and all these blokes, they were all pushing something, which is going to, as you say, which he says, requires pain mm. to, to, to submit to it. Yeah. So we all have that. And like Glenn Scrivener said to me, the whole world wants to repent. Every magazine front says, repent, repent, get the abs get the holiday and then you will be happy mm. and so here's a guy saying um uh, uh, it takes a, a person mm. a person mm. and that's a striking thing because there was a person yeah. and it's in that sense he says that he's he's unstripping mm. the whole thing so we can see this only is answered in christ yeah. i suppose the danger is when we see the complexity without christ yeah and that's the danger i suppose that's why we've got to mm. make sure we get through the whole book yeah <laughs> and, it, and actually i haven't really said anything about well, I haven't said much about personality in, relation, in the book in relation to world vision and worldview, but personality in this book is something that is reshaped by the gospel, actually. So you have your starting personality, who you are, you realize your world vision formed personality, and then the gospel confronts you and says, you need to change. And that will be really painful. It'll be a reordering yes. of who you are, yeah. and the gospel is the affective power that... It's the one thing that can actually remake you. Yeah, and then good. that's then if you don't have that, then pursuit of worldview is still some kind of uh, you know, futile abstraction. Yeah. But if you're being reformed by the gospel, then really the pursuit of worldview, what I love about this book is that he reframes it so that the pursuit of worldview is actually has to go beyond that. It's a pursuit of God. Amen. There and you if go. you don't pursue God beyond the worldview, the giver of a holistic way to a holistic way to, to view life and live within it is a gift. Amen. But this book is so Augustinian in that if you try and enjoy the gift, you'll, you'll hate it. You always have to move beyond the gift to the giver. Yeah, come on. This is a, that's great stuff. And also the way, you've, the way you translate it with those square brackets, just helping us to read it, you, you get the sense of pace. Mm. You can imagine the young engineering students saying, I see this guy. He's, he's obviously on fire with this. Mm. That's useful. That's yeah. helpful. There's a lesson in that for us. Um, it's, we don't want just to hear people standing up and giving a Bible study. Mm. Stephen Clark said to me when he was teaching at London Seminary, here we feed them and fire them. Mm. They've got to be fired to preach Christ. Because <laughs> uh, it's a... Oh, there's so many more things we can talk about. Thank goodness you wrote a book. We put it, it was all in the book, which is available at the back here. And if anyone hasn't got a copy, I think we hopefully have enough for everyone at half price. But let's thank James. That's outstanding, Liam. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.